Welcome to Consensus Unreality Season 2, uh, Episode 4. We are joined today with uh, author and researcher Paul Weston, one of the great chroniclers of the modern mythology and the happenings of the Western occult tradition and timeline, uh, frequent visitor of Chapel Perilous. Um, we've got some topics on the uh, docket today, and yeah. I think we're just going to get rolling. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Um, Pleasure. Yeah, so I guess I kind of pitched this as, because we just kind of came off of a dive into like the Streber kind of continuum. And so I, I know you've got some some interesting uh, insights into that. So I thought maybe we could just kind of start with uh, what you have uh, prepared yeah. on that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I first read Communion in 1987, uh, pretty much at the time when it was receiving maximum publicity in bookshops in this country, had huge cardboard cutouts of, of the grey on the cover. Uh, it was attracting a lot of attention. Now, I, I read it and I felt, because I was already very familiar with ufological literature, that it was you know, the most interesting and compelling account of a, a so-called contact that I'd read but it wasn't really uh, the straightforward aspects of the narrative that really hit me. I mean, first of all, I guess it was intriguing to me that, that Whitley's not exactly Mr. Normal to begin with. You know, this is a, a guy that's already uh, had some extraordinary novels out there at that point. Um, he's been in a Gurdjieff group for like decades. Uh, yeah. So my familiarity with that led me to realise that he was someone that paid a lot of attention to his life, its manifestations uh, and tendencies. So for him to suddenly come upon this hidden life, you know, this was the motif, the secret life that mm. really, really struck me because he comes to realise that there is another aspect of his life that he has not been fully conscious of. And as he catches up on it, what becomes clear is that that life is actually his real life. The events that are occurring in it are the fundamental centre of gravity of his external life. And he has not been aware of this. And gradually, you know, the subtle cues serve this reawakening and he catches up on himself and this results in a complete turnaround of his centre of gravity because this secret life has been living his third dimensional life. You know, that external life of, of what he thinks is his life is in fact just a, a kind of manifestation of something, something far deeper. And it was that, it was like something, it was like a motif out of some fairy story, some myth. And I wondered, you know, at the time, is there something in my own life? Um, and, and, and there was, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about that um, in this context, but in my book, Avalonian Eon, the connection I made with, with Psychic Question and Andrew Collins, this was all hovering in the background when I first read with Whitley. 
but it also reminded me of something in one of Carlos Castaneda's books. Mm. Now, Castaneda um, obviously has been completely deconstructed. He's had more than, you know, a little bit yeah. of criticism. The end of his life was a tad problematical, to say the least. But I still feel that a number of his works um, carry a certain emotional tone, which is very meaningful to me. And in The Eagle's Gift, there's a whole narrative where basically um, Carlos Castaneda and a, a group of sorcerers who have been associated with, with Don Juan come to discover that there is likewise a kind of secret life that they have lived. And they've done stuff in various places, various towns in sequence. They come to some town in Mexico and, and Castaneda and a female sorcerer are looking at this house and they're both convinced that they actually lived in that house together at some point. You know, that a whole bunch of things occurred between them in there. Now, regardless of all the problems of, of is it true or isn't it true, there was something about this theme that I found really, really fascinating. And it, it seemed like it was an echo of what I had responded with, uh, with communion. They discover that, that a whole bunch of them have, have kind of been living on the other side, in the dream side, the Nargwal or, or whatever. And they've received a whole coherent teaching, a whole kind of doctrine has been communicated to them. And yet their everyday waking selves have completely and utterly forgotten this. And then various things reawaken them and they rediscover, they take back on board, they recapitulate the whole thing. And this, this and the communion narrative kind of hung together in my head as, as something that there was a deep truth in there that maybe it, it spoke to my peculiar life but it also says something a little bit greater to people um, in general. Now, fast forward a little bit. I've been through all kinds of adventures. In 1992, in August 1992, I've started to get involved with a very remarkable uh, young woman, incredibly psychic, but in an unusual sort of way. Now, she wasn't your standard issue space case. You know, she went on to be very, very anchored in the material world and very functional. You know, I'm going to say too much about it because she's got quite a high-profile life as it goes. Mm. But there was a, a point where we went to a nightclub one Saturday night, and, you know, we'll, I'll admit we probably had a few spliffs, but what actually transpired in there, it was very, very surreal. It was a time when in Britain there was an ABBA revival, you know, and they started blasting out Dancing Queen, and she could stay <laughs> in the nightclub a whole bunch of tiny dwarf ETs um, having a little jig about. Wow. Now, this wasn't like a floating glimpse. This, this was, was going on, you know, she could see them for about 15 solid minutes and they're all dancing about to have her. And it's like, you know, what the hell? What the hell? This, this was, was a, the start of a very intense period that also ultimately involved me and her Having some kind of past life thing involving the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, you know, she was round my place on Friday night and she saw the entire, all the walls dissolved, the whole place turned into a Babylonian temple and she was taken into this, this kind of blue flame and initiated as a priestess of Ishtar. I mean, that was just 
that was just out of weekends rolled in those days. <laughs> so we enter into this extraordinary association, and we this is all in my book out guys. We soon meet up with a very strange guy. It was a, a Raj Nish Sanyasi who supposedly channels angels and ETs and things like this. You know, he would just sit there with his eyes closed and sort of wave his hands about and everybody would just fall over and flop on the floor and the more visionary people would say some really crazy old stuff. Now, my, my, my friend at the time, she saw, you know, um, the entire room dissolve and some like mini Spielberg mothership come down and a bunch of little ETs looking like skinned frogs, as she put it, up about all over her. Hmm. This was how crazy it was, and this was no drugs at all at this point. Now, what I found really intriguing was whenever this guy said the ETs are, are, are about to arrive, I actually, because I spent quite a bit of time with him, I actually kind of knew from a strange bodily signal what he was going to say in advance, because I suddenly found that I felt my fingers massively elongate and become really weird and spindly. And I used to think, I bet he's going to say the ETs are coming. And he always did. So it was my little signification that something pretty strange was going on. It might not be exactly what he said it was. It might, you know, the imagery was simply the form it took for those of us present in accordance with our particular temperaments and so forth. But something radical was going on. Now, at that time, I suddenly thought, let's, let's look at the, the movie of communion, uh, which I had seen years beforehand. Uh, and when we saw it, we were absolutely gobsmacked that there was this scene with um, the dancing ETs mm -hmm. with Christopher Walken. Now, what is weird about that, I mean, that, that seems, you know, to completely validate this. But if you read the book, that isn't in the book. You know, that is one of, of those little bits of invention that, that Whitley probably got so fed up about um, that are, are just, you know, part of that strange quality of the movie. I still love the movie, but I can understand why he would be well well upset about it. But that was going on. And when I, when I read the book again, I had completely forgotten that there comes a point where he starts to talk about Ishtar and he starts to talk about the old, you know, Babylonian depictions of her with the big almond eyes. And he's feeling that the main, you know, E.T., that he, or we'll call it an E.T., visitor that he had encountered uh, was in fact female and was in some way connected with Ishtar. So this completely scrambled me because it was something that I didn't see I could create wholesale purely out of some cryptomnesiac, you know, having read the book, seen the film, I was interacting with somebody else, a whole bunch of things that were outside of my conscious control were going on. And it tied in for me with one of the ideas I'd taken from Jacques Valley was this idea that there's, there's a kind of the ufological phenomenon represents a kind of potential control system of consciousness. Mm. And I started to use the term carrier wave. But somehow or another, it, it served a whole bunch of other stuff, was accelerated and intensified and put through the blender as a result of the initial impetus that had been set off by that. 
And that was indeed the case uh, with the whole saga that I experienced in 1992. Um, it's in my book, Out of Gartis. We can come back round to that a bit later on and where that goes into Kenneth Grant territory. Mm. But I want to, you know, lead from that into, into something else again that is, is part of my, my long-term connection to ufology that is in many respects just completely different altogether. And this, this leads us into, you know, where I am in Glastonbury, the physical location of Glastonbury. One of the great champions of Glastonbury in the 1970s was a guy called Anthony Roberts. And he had um, been the main mover in an anthology uh, called Glastonbury Ancient Avalon New Jerusalem, which had, had introduced people to the subject of the so-called terrestrial zodiac here. It had been a great... Um, enthusiast of William Blake and just the idea that Glastonbury is some kind of ultimate visionary beacon of the human spirit that will, will come to enlighten the world. And he had a legendary transition when he died of a heart attack on Glastonbury Tour in 1990. Now, what I came to learn uh, was that although this wasn't particularly mentioned in any of his books, the fundamental experience in his life and fundamental experience for his wife, Jan, as well, was uh, a UFO experience that they had had in 1969. Uh, now, he'd already come to Glastonbury. He was absolutely full to the brim with what I'd call um, psychedelic earth mysteries ufology. Mm. He's read everything of that time. He's imbibed all the kind of stuff from Desmond Leslie and Adamski's, you know, flying saucers have landed, a proto-ancient aliens smorgasbord with all the kind of 60s material as well. So he's kind of primed. And then he and his wife are, are in a car driving. Um, they're on the outskirts of London, and it's August 1969. And it's twilight, so there's that... No stars quite yet, no moon, nothing like that. And I say, uh, I'm reading from his account now, a huge white disc shining in the sky in the middle distance ahead of us. To them, it's about the size of a big grapefruit hanging in the sky. So they, they, they slow down uh, to watch it. And it cut it, the colour changes to gold and like orange fire. And then they slow the car even more and a bunch of small... Uh, discs appear on the left-hand side of it and flicker and twinkle, and then they line up uh, and, and all blend into this, this this main disc. And then it kind of moves forward with tremendous speed, and, and they stop, stop the car, get out, and, and it's now hanging in the distance, motionless in the sky, and they just get this feeling of total ecstasy come over them. Uh, and it, it, it then starts to move directly towards them, and it's pulsating with a green light, a blue light. Others creates weird geometrical patterns. You know, this whole thing is going on for about 20 minutes. It's not something that is just a very brief glimpse. At one point, it seems to resemble a fish moving through water. It's doing the whole lot. And then it just suddenly shoots off into the sky and ping, it's gone. And that's that. And, you know, um, Tony's wife, Jan, is just crying. They feel like they've been... It, they've, they've experienced God, you know. A mm. couple of days later, 
he's on his way to work on a motorbike and gets knocked knocked off by somebody, car hits him. And this means that he's got to have six months off work. And it's like he gets this massive download and he just starts writing this, this text, which is everything that he's been mulling over just comes out. And it's like, um, it's a bit like maybe Morning of the Magicians. It, it's kind of like a whole bunch of stuff, the Muria, Mew, Atlantis, um, every ancient alien trope of that time that you can possibly imagine, you know, the Great Pyramid being built by um, sonic engineering with the help of joint ET, stuff about the fall of Atlantis, stuff about Glastonbury and Britain and the megaliths all being the remnants of, the, of, of, of Atlantis and refugees from Atlantis. It's massive. It's about, you know, if you published it as a normal-sized book, where he got to would be about 500 pages worth. Mm. He spent a couple of years on it, and then he ran out of steam. Bits of it were mined and published. Now, I ended up being the first person to write this thing uh, in 40 years outside of the family household. You know, I was, I was reading it in 2013, 2014. And what I think this text might be... Um, some people will probably, uh, you know, ridicule it, but I was in a really good headspace to just read it you know i went all the way through it and i loved it i absolutely loved it and there was talk of getting a new version a new edition of this anthology glass of the ancient avalon new jerusalem out and his wife jan asked me would i write an introduction to it and could i would incorporate all this stuff now that never happened but what did happen was my book the glass of the zodiac and earth mysteries and mythology this whole thing with tony roberts was the centre of gravity of the creation of that whole book, which eventually, once I moved on it, I did it really, really quickly. And I got it out um, to launch at a Glastonbury conference in July 2015, the Glastonbury Symposium. And there is a video of that out there, and I'm pretty happy with how that one turned down. And Sham was there, and there are a whole bunch of pictures of him shown. So it was like this profound contact experience it had secretly shaped the way Glastonbury was being talked about and expressed in the, in the 1970s, at the time when the, when the town becomes this kind of a hippie mystical pilgrimage centre and expand, starts to expand into the form that it's in now. In the background, amongst a number of the people that had ideas about it, was this idea of the fact that there's stuff here that is tens of thousands of years old. I don't necessarily believe that. What I do believe in is the potency of the ideas and that at certain times particular ideas set people off. And, you know, this, this thing had, had, had been, was a relic of Atlantean culture and that there was massive ET involvement. And we're talking nuts and bolts here. You know, Tony Roberts was, was a, a very definite nuts and bolts kind of guy. But this was all there, and it was a fascinating bit of bit of history. And I was really, really chuffed that I I got that out in the way that I did then. But there was, you know, there was something else else coming uh, almost instantly that was just completely bonkers. And this is my, you know, my third story. This was July 2015. I've got this book out in 
August 2015, start of August, I have, I call it my, my Glastonbury UFO Bodybuilders Day Out. And it was one of the most bonkers day, days out that I've ever had around here. And it all starts with a, a 1954 classic UK UFO case. You know, one of the very, very best. Now, this happened uh, not that far from here. You know, about, I don't know, 15 miles up the road from here in May 1954. There's a guy called Nigel Frapple. He's out at two in the morning. He's coming home from, from spending some time with his girlfriend. It's, it's countryside out there, you know, and he sees this orange glow low in the sky and he thinks, what's going on here? You know, is, is there a farm on fire? So he approaches, uh, takes a look, crouches down and sees apparently hovering about 40 foot off the ground, you know, a weird classic 50s saucer, you know, dome-shaped objects. Um, it's got a, seems to have a cockpit. There's, 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 there's portholes that have got light glowing inside. There's something moving about inside that suggests that it's in some way occupied. You know, there's a weird sort of flashing light disco effect going on. And it's, it's actually hangs there for like five, five minutes. You know, again, it's not a, a, a something that's just a, a brief glimpse. And then he walks forward just a little bit more and it's as if he's been spotted and it just shoots off across the sky. Uh, so he's obviously, you know, 1954, though there's a little bit of, of, of flying saucer mania at the time. It's, in the English countryside, it's not exactly a big deal. He tells everybody about it. Uh, he ends up getting interviewed. Um, Desmond Leslie, um, you know, co-author with, with Adamski, turns up and interviews him. He's in the national newspapers. And the thing, you know, the BBC uh, ask him to show where he saw this thing. And this is, is where... You know, modern investigators would just be so frustrated about this because there's there's a circular burn mark of some kind on on the ground where this thing was supposed to be hovering over that stays there uh, for a really long time. You know, and we would obviously now think if we could only get you know a sample out of that and analyse that and just see what on earth's going on there. And then he also finds a neighbor, somebody that lives nearby who has also seen this thing. You know, so there's confirmation. They've seen it from underneath. They've seen it flying off and they've given, you know, a description of this. Now, the classic thing is that a couple of weeks later, after all this publicity, two guys in suits come and knock on his door. And, and one of them, he says, has these really terrible black eyes. And they basically say to him, look, you know, you've been saying too much about this, you know, you better be quiet or there's going to be a lot of trouble. Now, we now obviously think this is classic Men in Black stuff, but this is 1954. This is Britain, Somerset. You know, nobody knows anything about that stuff, but it's absolutely archetypal. There it is. So, of course, he doesn't shut up about it, you know, um, and it is passed down through his family um, and his grandson, Lee, um, who's into bodybuilding. It also ends up really into ufology and ufological mysteries. And he came to work uh, with a mate of mine called Phil in a, in a factory in Philsitz and told him a little bit about me. So Lee befriended me on Facebook and we had some interesting exchanges because he's kind of, you know, we're both very interested in peak experiences in sport. 
mystical side of bodybuilding, a whole load of weird stuff like that. But he says to me one day, um, I've got a friend coming over from Spain, a bodybuilder coming over from Spain. Um, how about um, we get my granddad and we all meet up in Glastonbury and he, he tells us about his experience and then you can take us for, for a tour of Glastonbury. So I said, yeah, that sounds great. Now, what I didn't appreciate was that Lee's bodybuilder friend from Spain was a guy called Dorian Yates, who is, was six times Mr. Olympia and is considered by some to be the greatest bodybuilder of all time, even better than Arnie, and he's like a beast and a legend. And led a very, very interesting life, you know, and has now gone down the rabbit hole and done ayahuasca and all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, when, when I met him, he's, he's obviously not in training anymore, but he's still a big guy, you know, and he, he told, told us all sorts of fascinating stories about the gym, the subterranean gym he used to work out in, because he was not a, a California Gold's gym, only in Franco Colombo type character, you know, he lived in Birmingham in, in the UK and trained in this haunted former martial arts dojo. And amazing conversation we had, and we end up meeting in a pub in Glastonbury called the Georgian Pilgrim, which is which dates from the medieval time, from the days of the Abbey, and is famously haunted. So there's me and Lee and a few other people, and Dorian Yates and Nigel Frattle, uh, absolutely enthralling us with his story of his 1954 UFO experience, you know, and the men in black, and so forth. And I just thought, what the hell is the cause and effect on that man? You know, it's all that in microdotted and implicit in hyperspace in May 1954 when whatever the hell that thing was manifested. Where, where do you draw the line and say, well, okay, that's that. That's that thing sorted out. And it's like it made me think, you know, the tangents of it were absolutely extraordinary. But what it, it kind of went back on was that kind of theme of the secret life and the part of the self that is just outside the normal confines of space-time. And, and that kind of, you know, the Strieber, Castaneda type thing, where that had hit me. Because, you know, me and Lee, we talked about um, people like this, a, a, a 70s bodybuilder called Frank Zane from the, from the Arnie era, who, who, you know, people don't necessarily realise part of his, his training for Mr Olympia one year was to recite the Buddhist mantra, uh, Nama Amida Butsu, three million times. And when he appeared on stage and won this competition, you know, people still argue about it, whether it was just all the oil on his body and the light. People said there was light shining out of it, you know. And, you know, I gave a presentation in Glastonbury on, on the mystical side of sport, you know, uh, very much inspired by Michael Murphy and work at Asylum and books that he'd done way back, back in the 70s. And Lee turned up for that. And I just felt, you know, it is actually a unity. Somewhere that there is a gigantic, very, very big spectrum indeed, where somehow this is all the same thing. You know, this is not separation. And, and the cast of characters, you know, when you think of, say, Anthony Roberts and his UFO experience um, in 1969, I mean, he was not a fit guy. He was a huge guy, uh, very obese, overweight. He died of a heart attack, you know, on the slopes of Glastonbury Tour. And then on the other hand, you've got Dorian Yates, you know, Mr. Olympia six times. And, and you've got, you know, me and my friends seeing this, these little E2s boogieing about to ABBA. There is some kind of, you know, there is a trickster thing that is at play 
that is trying to nudge you from your normal mental constructs as to what you think things are, how they hang together, what's possible, what isn't possible, where the dividing line between one subject and another is. So, you know, that's that's what I, I, I put out there um, as, as our starting point there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that last story is incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so funny. I was just... Uh... For some reason, before we got on the on the call with you, I had mentioned bodybuilding. So it's like so funny that that just randomly comes <laughs> well, up. Right, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, what do you think, um, as far as uh, Streber goes? I guess. How do you think that that? Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, in your book that also mentions uh, Streber, etc. There's some Grant connections. What What do you think the connection between? Uh, the sort of the, the UFO abduction, uh, you know, I guess archetype maybe that, that came out of, especially, especially communion. Uh, what, where do you think that fits into like the uh, magical sort of tradition? Okay, well, if we, we look into what's been made of the infamous drawing that mm-hmm. Crowley made in 1918, mm-hmm. uh, that gets called Lamb. You know, yeah. whether lamb is even considered to really be a name attributed to this thing, all of this is contentious, but it's got an enormous amount of mileage behind it now. Yeah. And thanks to Kenneth Grant, mm-hmm. thanks to his closest associate, Michael Staley, there is a, a what you could call a cult of lamb. Mm-hmm. And the cult of lamb, um, if you engage with it, is undoubtedly a, a very powerful thing, or, or it can be. And the idea would be that that weird face you know that is represented by that drawing is is maybe um the terminology can be argued about but we'll say it's a mask of the holy guardian angel or a mask of the demon or a mask of the, the higher self or you know people like to draw these distinctions but we know brett broadly what we're what we're hinting at and it's one of those things um the mystery is, is, is why at a particular time certain images take particular forms because people mm-hmm. are still experiencing Christian angels. People are still experiencing, you know, Egyptian, Greek, Norse, gods, goddesses in those forms. But for some reason, you know, um, in the 20th century, you get this kind of... Um, weird mutation in which we've got this this kind of science fiction reality in the ets but the whole thing with land again seems to be uh that you are potentially expanding your consciousness kenneth grant i think it's an outside the circles of time he uses this phrase extraterrestrial gnosis Mm. Mm -hmm. and i've got a whole section in my alistair crowley and the inner horus of that title in which I've, i've gather together an immense amount of material. And Grant, when he says extraterrestrial, the common kind of association with that is, oh, another planet, another galaxy, a physical, you know, realm. But really it's about just not three-dimensional. You know, in this sense, it's like not limited by the usual sense coordinates, you know, the normal geometry that it is some fundamental aspect of, of ourselves. You know, you get all these um, discussions of, of are, the, are the ET entities ourselves in the future, et cetera, are they ourselves in a, another dimension? 
I think the way, you know, the grog gnosis works is, is to just expand one's sense of identity. That, you know, there is, we all know we've kind of got an unconscious, if you like, and we've maybe had the sense of its non-rationality introduced to us by people like Freud, and there's a lot to be said for that. But in fact, the sum total of our unconscious uh, is far vaster. It is certainly very dreamlike. Strieber, Strieber comes to this in communion because a lot of this stuff is memories of what he's not even sure if he's dreaming it. It's something that's coming from a dreamlike realm. It's unconscious. Mm. But it's also, you know, in terms of the distinctions that Freud and Jung used to argue about, unconscious is not necessarily sub. There can be higher levels of unconscious you know it can be stuff that's working right now um you know in another dimensional realm altogether that is is in certain respects more truly ourselves than you know us just looking and talking in our three-dimensional bodies and, and so forth there might be a lot more going on and it's the imagery and the emotive tone that goes with it and how it's discussed that seems in some people to be able to set off a particular, you know, kind of mutation. Uh, you know, the abduction issue, you know, is almost like a subset of that. It's a thing unto itself. It's not the whole story, you know. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. I, you know, like the, the image you conjured in the one vision that your friend had had at the time, too, of like the skinned frogs is almost something right out of like Hecate's Fountain. Sure. Um, and it makes me think about what Grant calls the, the tangential tantrum, you know, these sort of like causal, uh, unintended effects of magical workings. And I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, yeah, if- that, that's, that's, that's an idea that I have long pondered over, that when it comes to the true will, Mm-hmm. of where it's really coming from um you think you know what you're doing but in fact you know months or years later it's clear that there is a, there is actually something else going on from another perspective that was always what was really the case um and sometimes it just never gets figured out you know something like the parsons uh, hubbard cameron babylon working yeah, that's a massive case of the old tangential because I, I don't think the end outcome was consciously in any of their minds. And and just what the end outcome is, it's still rippling out there. You know, one's perspective on it can change almost yearly. Right. Yeah, that's uh, – it feels like one of those uh, – yeah, yeah, what the, what the effects are seem to change depending on right. – and John Michel, yeah. you know, back in the, in the 60s, um, in a very early ufological book, Flying Source of Vision, he said, you know, you simply aren't going to be able to work out really what the causes are. Yeah. You, you, the only way you can assess these things is by their, by their effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those effects, you know, they spread very far and wide. It's like um, I talked about the idea of this, this carrier wave back in, in the 60s um, when it seems to be that UFOs were congregating above ancient stone circles and sacred sites. And, you know, the, the French researcher had, had suggested they fly, flew in straight lines. So then it was suggested that they're flying along ley lines. What happens is 
the whole subject of ley lines and the so-called earth mysteries is completely regenerated. You've got people going out to ancient stone circles and hanging out in the middle of the night on UFO watches, and they're learning folklore, they're learning history, they're getting immersed in a landscape, uh, something they wouldn't necessarily have done. And then it's almost like the external ufological aspect of it, also, it kind of moves on. And, and, and what you've got left with is a bunch of people with mystical intent and old states of consciousness who are now really getting into the history and the mythology uh, of particular sites. I'm, you know, you, you, you've had an awful lot of that stateside, uh, without a doubt. I'm yeah. sure, I, I very much believe that the phenomenon mm. has acted in that way out there, the way it's activated your folklore, mm. you know, mm. the whole thing with, with Bigfoot and, and just everything, you know, there's a, a Native American law and what we can, you know, all this sort of stuff. It's like something is massively activated uh, in a way that it wouldn't otherwise have been without that stimulus. And when the stimulus is gone, it's disappeared like fairy gold. It's got this <laughs> trickster thing to it. If you're a cynic, you can just take it to flipping paces. And when you look back at some of the ufological literature, the 50s and 60s and 70s, or even in the 80s, where it seems to set off a lot of the new age channeling, mm. you know, it's very easy to be cynical about it. But one of the things I'm most grateful for in my temperament is that I can go back and read that stuff. Mm. And I can still grok it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, let's let's not forget uh, the proto New Age event, the harmonic convergence, which was in mm. you know pretty much this time of year, nineteen eighty-seven. Jose Alguelles, you know, said it off. Yeah, he's a mystical visionary, space case. He's also a PhD art professor. Yeah. But the thing that set him off on that, more than anything else, although he was massively primed by a lot of things, he met Richard Hoagland. And Hoagland had got some, some copies of his face on Mars pictures that were, in his opinion, the best versions he had. And he showed Jose, and after Jose left him, he just went into, you know, sat in his, his car in the car park and just totally went off on one and had some massive, great visionary experience where everybody's, uh, there's a whole bunch of people lying in a circle on the ground looking up at the sky, and, and he thinks that it's the Earth's surrender right. And the whole roots of the harmonic convergence come in our is seeing the photos of the face on Mars. Now, again, you know, that whole issue of those photos and what that's all about and is it real and is it BS, there's simply you no know, getting away from the fact that those pictures had a well-powerful effect on people's heads at a particular time and they set something in motion. Whether we've moved on from that now, whether we're leaving behind, they serve some very strange, you know, mythic purpose. And they had a, a kind of time release mechanism on it and a whole bunch of things were set in motion. And this is, again, this mystery of, like, look look at the effects of it. You know, look at the effects of it. And, and, and the fact that there are times when this thing seems very expansive and there are times when people get the fear over it. And, and, when, uh, uh, and for me, you know, the real, the real action is in all this mythology and the way it activates human consciousness. I'm, I, I'm not interested in so-called disclosure. It's always a total letdown. Yeah. It never does anything. It's like, what's, what the hell is going on in people's heads? Yeah. With this, right. uh, that's the real issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, the visions of like Streber and, and even Lovecraft and then, you know, the descriptions of the workings in the New Isis Lodge have this... Uh, 
fear spectrum to them, you know, which is yeah. seems like it's part of like a massive initiation. Um, and they all. Well, do, I, you know. I ran with the theme in my Foley book of, of the kind of mass crossing of the abyss, mm. and, and I've noticed, you know, that Rob and Wilson gets a bit of stick these days, but I still feel the chat with perilous concept um, is very important. That you do get yeah. to a point where what you encounter uh, seems to be, you know, demons and full of um, secret societies that are mainly no good. And that the world is is in, intent on destroying you, but somehow or another there is a test of keeping your centre of gravity there, mm. and, and uh, in that you know your relationship to these things somehow changes, and, and maybe it is a little bit like you know some of the the higher aspects of Tibetan Buddhism or so on, where you know these 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 demons actually transmute things, you know. But it, it's 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 an art that the mass mind right now is definitely lost. And people are, are careering off big time into all kinds of Koronzonic uh, chaos. But all the more, you know, all the more motivation to try and keep that whole centre of gravity. Yeah. Yes. And, and abide yeah. with the massive amount of, of tremendously sound material that we've got, you know, uh, and, yeah. and not let it be submerged by a whole bunch of complete nonsense. Right. It's, uh, you, you mentioned the, the face on Mars thing. I was just reading, uh, Strieber's The Secret School. And in that, he kind of says that the face on Mars was another, like, inciting event for him as well. So, I, I, Secret School is probably, it might be my favorite book of his. Yeah. No, I don't know. There's something about it. Um, yeah. It does it for me and always has done. You know, people, there's all kinds of discussion about that period of his life and what was really going on. But again, right. like with communion, I think regardless of whether he was being messed about with by nefarious military and psychological organisations, there's just some motif of that, that deeper life there. And that mm. the mystery of childhood and your early adolescence and when is it exactly that you really do connect to this stuff? How far back in your life does it really go, you know? Right. Uh, and, and how that plays out, you know, and how you just keep on coming back to these these little intuitive things from earlier on in your life, and they do have that sense of a childhood dream about them. You realise you've always been primed; it was always working its way through, you know. Hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That book, and it's structured in that uh, that nine triads kind of way too, and hmm. that. That motif in his work is interesting too. The three knocks, yeah, happening. three by three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that does sound very occultist, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, three by three is just this sink that seems to like appear with so much ufological stuff, and obviously has the Masonic connections. There's a weird uh, relationship going on there that seems intentional. Um, what what do you make of something like the? The significance of like the the star sapphire ritual and the serious connection, though. I mean, we're kind of talking about like the the experience manifesting in these like personal mythologies, but something like that seems to have this like very consistent thread for you know many people, like Raw and PKD and uh, you know Robert Temple. It just seems to have this almost like historical lineage that occurs. I, I think at the very least, uh, it could be said that there is some intelligence that 
wants us to think along certain lines because if we don't, it reconfigures our relationship to everything that's going on around us. It reconfigures our relationship to how the world works, our societies work, what's at work, behind the rise and fall of empires. The idea that there are maybe, you know, things that persevere, that survive beneath the turbulence and so on. And that what those things have at their absolute core um, is, is stuff that actually changes the way your brain works. Mm. Now, of course, you encounter the paranoia factor there. The, the thing is, I don't know, you know, with, with Cosmic Trigger, I guess, you know, I first read it nearly 40 years ago. I've read it nearly 30 times now. So it's, it's like I realised when I talk to people that maybe only read it once or read it a couple of times that I, I've got a completely different feel mm. to it um, than, than people, you know, they'll just school the thing, Operation Mind, but that's great, that's very important, but that's that's not what I, I most take from it. What I, I take from it is the idea that if you engage with with certain ideas from the likes of Crowley, uh, it, it often boils down to quite a lot of self-discipline and it involves, you know, reading very widely in, in things that appear to present completely divergent, you know, polarised, you know, uh, uh, ways of, of looking at everything. But the idea is to annihilate those opposites, mm. you know, and to come to a higher unity. And the reason why that's knocking at the inner doors of our heads so strongly is there's never been a more urgent time, you know. I mean, we are so polarised now, it's absolutely bonkers. It's horrifying uh, how polarised people are. Uh, we've got it over American politics. We've got it over COVID. People absolutely demonising each other to an extent that, that is obviously pathological and deranged, but people are so overcome with some strange righteousness of their own opinions. Mm-hmm. That's when you have to abide in the idea that, okay, orthodox historians will say, no, nah, there's no great tradition, there's no sort of perennial wisdom, there's no secret societies that pass anything down. The very least we can say is that great visionaries like William Blake seem to just naturally um, be their own great tradition. And, and when you look at someone like him, actually, um, you know, I wrote a whole book about, about him as well. Uh, the culture that he found in, in late 18th, uh, 18th century London was absolutely taming with all kinds of, of occultism, you know, Kabbalah and uh, weird ass, you know, sexual mysticism, you know, Swedenborg and so on. The great inspired people will always renew these elements through their their poetic genius. Mm. You know, now, now there are times when this flows, but in my opinion, we had it in the 60s, the, one of the most nefarious things going down at the moment for me is the idea that the 60s were nothing but some MK Ultra soil. Mm. You know, the, all, all the great rock stars, you know, Jim Marston, well, it's, it's, it's all MK Ultra. His dad was involved in Vietnam and, uh, and so forth. Right. Um, therefore, you know, the Laurel Canyon material and also mm-hmm. the idea that, that, you know, Leary is nothing but a CIA snitch and every single bit of genius, you know, I, I know people that, that even don't believe the Beatles wrote their own songs and they're all written by some intelligence group. And, yeah. and that, to me, uh, what's nefarious about that is the idea that, like, magnificent, spontaneous genius erupting out of particular cultural contexts that are rare 
you know, is being, um, you know, talked down, reduced, rationalised, when in fact more of the same is what will actually, you know, change our emotional state and the way that we're, we're responding to all this goddamn nonsense. Because think about the 60s, you know, there was some terrible, terrible stuff going down. Vietnam was going down all sorts, but it was made tolerable, it was made bearable by the fact that there seemed to be this tremendous tide of genius and intensity that was, you know, working against that. And the ufological thing was part of it. Uh, it, it was huge, you know, I mean, I've written at length, you know, Socrates in the Inner Hall was sort of really got the town on this, but it seems very important, again, you know, we just had the 50th anniversary of the death of Jim Morrison. I saw stuff all over Facebook with this, you know, the Laurel Canyon stuff. Right. Yeah, the facts are, are there, but the interpretation of them, the overvaluation of those facts and the fact that, like, in the end, you know, you, when you diminish genius, when you diminish the, the, the best of those times, uh, you are actually doing a massive psyop on us now. You are making us just feel that everything is shit and nothing is worth it. None, nothing, <laughs> nothing can change anything. There's, there's no point in being, you know, creative and outstanding and going out there and doing stuff because, you know, it's all just in the hands of, of the New World Order, Illuminati, my control, whatever. Uh, and right. what you're then left with the only options you've got are pretty bad ones. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're just, you're just going to turn into a monster and maybe that's how they want the situation to be handled. Sure. Yeah, yeah that whole uh, the, the David David McGowan, uh, Laurel, Ca Laurel Canyon book and uh, program, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I read his stuff and that, that's sort of the way that sort of seeped into the esoteric but more like the conspiracy culture online like yeah that everything's I find uh, a lot of people just take that as, it's, uh, as like that that's mm -hmm. it right that's all there is to be said about it there's yeah. no you know there's nothing more to be said on the subject right it's, it's a useful yeah. it's a useful tool but yeah to like sort of assume yeah it's uh that's all it is i think is is uh it's a and i, I yeah. think on, a, on another twist of the spectrum um all the recent material with all these uh you know the TikTok ufo videos the stuff is fascinating but it's also uh very decidedly keeping it in the realm of nuts and bolts hmm. you know it's mm -hmm. very yeah. much keeping it now no no mysteries of consciousness here to be seen right uh, yeah. this just got nothing to do with it mate you know nothing going on in the human brain nothing has any continuity with mythology and folklore down through the ages. Uh, let's just keep it focused on tech and mm. power politics and um, yeah. you know all this all this it's reductionism again. Right. And it's all part of, of of an insidious thing to just watch out for in my opinion. Yeah, there's right. a clear yeah. directive of like framing it in a in a means of defense, like national defense and our, our yeah, airspace yeah. and all that stuff. Uh Insidious yeah. is definitely the the correct word for that. Yeah, I was gonna I was going to ask you actually about what you thought of the whole that the, the trend toward uh, back towards like a literal uh, alien from another planet flying here. Like, what you thought about that that nuts and bolts trajectory of recent ufology? It, it seems extraordinary considering the wealth of material that we've had ever since John Keel, Jack Valley, and so on. Right. That, we still can't establish um, in the mass mind that there is this aspect to it. Because as far as I'm concerned, it's not exactly boring, is it? This study of all this 
material is about as, as fascinating as anything I can think of. You know, um, books like Passport to Magonia and Operation Trojan Horse, they're mm -hmm. still to me uh, absolutely incendiary. They just, whenever I come back to them, which, you know, maybe about every five years I'll read them again, they always set my head on fire. And it's, it, you know, Valley and the Virgin Mary visions, you know, Fatima and just Lourdes and all this sort of stuff. And, and you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe, just looking at all this stuff from that perspective, looking at it both ways, you know, is, is really, really important to, to our study of culture and mythology. You know, if I, if I was running some study of religion course at university, um, I'd have to stick in, mm -hmm. um, you know, passports to Magonia an Operation Trojan Horse. Yep. Because it, it's, it's at very least, it, there's a kind of phenomenological importance to it in as much as this is how things are playing out in human consciousness, using the raw material of, you know, our tens of thousands of years worth of, of, of religion and mythology. So that's like, a, it, that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. But obviously, you know, the vested interests that, you know, just through sheer inertia and the cumulative force of, of just power say otherwise you yeah. know mm -hmm. they don't want us getting too interested in anything concerning culture that's another thing that's just getting completely you know flatlined yeah yeah i think going back to the um like the program to kill stuff and maury terry and all that i think something that i recognized early on uh, in your work, listening to you talk, um, you know, years and years ago, is that you found, you know, Robert Anton Wilson's reality tunnels as a sort of like roadmap for engaging conspiracy stuff and engaging yeah. phenomena. And I think that's such an important tool that not a lot of people are equipped with, you know, that you can, you know, get in the frame of mind of program to kill, but you got to let yourself out of it, you know, like... Yeah. Well, I very bravely tackled uh, all the Montauk books um, over and over again. And I, I wrote a fairly extensive summary of about the first five of them in my Crowley book. And it was part of, you know, conspiracism um, as a kind of path to initiation, if you like. That, like it, it was, it, it's really messing with people's heads. And, and it was because I'd got the, the cosmic trigger background that it's like, you, you try and get to what it's got, what are all the common points? Uh, and it's like sooner or later you're going to come across Crowley, sooner or later you're going to come across uh, Jack Parsons and the Babylon working, sooner or later you're going to come across the whole issue of ufology and secret societies and so on and so forth. And also, you know, you get this in, in Montauk, it gets to a certain point where you get the idea there's sacred sites all around the world. They're all linked up by some kind of grid. Is there ancient civilizations? It's like there's a certain level of the game that like just switches another bit of your head on and then you switch yet another bit of the head on. But it, you can end up in this hall of mirrors and that is where so many people are going now because mm -hmm. they are very, very attached to their, to their so-called information and the emotional tone that they bring to it. And it's, it's kind of understandable, you know. I mean, it's not that there aren't ever any bad guys. That's the, the difficult issue. You know, we've got the little issue of the Nazis in the Second World War hanging over us there. You know, there are casualties. There are people that are quite deliberately, you know, going about and causing an awful lot of upset. People are dying, people are being killed. But I've never believed, you know, I've, I've 
and it's a, a very difficult thing to sort of um, engage with. But clearly, the satanic panic was always overblown. But that's not to say that there aren't there's no reality to it. Mm. But it's like when you start extrapolating global conspiracy, and that's where we've just lost the plot now. You know, we've definitely lost yeah. the plot in this country. Uh, there was a a big demonstration in London. You know, traffic was stopped uh, a couple of days ago. Um, more than a hundred people um, demonstrating against Freemason paedophilia and New World Order Illuminati sacrifice. They appear to be primarily uh, led by some strange evangelical Christian woman, and they, you know, parked themselves upset outside a big Masonic uh, HQ in London. Uh, 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 made a lot of noise there. Um, but when you when you actually kind of engage with any single bit of the information they're putting out, it just kind of dissolves away. Now that's not to say there's no such you know there's no genuine cases ever, but the actual the level of derangement that seems to be sort of excavated when you hit a certain level of the gun, it, it's it's once again you know in all of this, this is why I found Crowley interesting with the idea of the true will. Uh, uh, and engaging with what you might call the daemon or the holy guardian angel is you've got to find some way of keeping the center of gravity that is a, 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 a and you will reach a point in the game where it becomes pretty dangerous you know i mean some of this is in my guy's book but there's a video lecture of mine out there called south end glastonbury cremation ground mandala stuff got very serious for me when i was in my my early 30s there was you know people dying and going crazy and you know, serial killers very close to me, um, a whole bunch of stuff going on. And it was like being in the middle of some flaming mandala of some Tibetan painting with all these crazy ass, you know, personifications of different different tendencies, you know, acting out all around, almost daring you, you know, to make a mistake by just going a little bit too far in one direction. Oh, yeah, no, I'm just pondering. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, huh. yeah. As far as the the satanic panic stuff goes, it really is. It's so interesting uh, when that overlaps with because the satanic panic is sort of like a what's the word for it? Like a sort of a false image. It's like there aren't really. I presume you guys saw the Netflix Maury Terry uh, documentary yeah. earlier yeah. this year. That was a yeah. fascinating thing to see, and it was kind of sad to see the extent to which he completely lost himself in it. You know, right. Um, right. The, the basic centre of gravity of it, you know, Berkowitz, the New York scene, then various people associated with that. There, there was some dark, spooky shit going on there for sure, but he just yeah. galloped off. And, and you know, he could he. he was one of the people responsible for creating that whole, uh, you know, ridiculous climate at that, that time. Mm. Uh, and, and there are some people that definitely suffered as a result of it, people that went down for jail sentences and all kinds of things that should never have happened. Mm. But it is, you know, it's, it's like the light and dark, you know, uh, that mm. particular time uh, with Reagan and so on in the White House and the kind of Christianity that was, was being starting to be pumped out then, and now, well, I, I, I don't even contemplate the extents of the derangement of, of QAnon and so forth. You know, one of the yeah. distressing aspects of, of 
recent times in Glastonbury is pretty much all the new ages here uh, went over to QAnon uh, and, and Trump as a cult messiah. And a lot of them are still hanging on to some, you know, even though the whole edifice has fallen away and nothing has been delivered, nothing. There are still people coming up with some remarkable material that they still think, yeah. you know, is, is, is going to hang on in there. And it's <laughs> like it's way back in the 50s, yeah. that book, When Prophecy Failed. Yeah. You know, the, the, the convolutions that the people will put themselves through. So, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm also a history freak. You know, I'm really glad that I started off as a history nerd and that I'm pretty big on names, dates and places and making sure I've got the narrative straight. Yeah. Uh, so that if I'm going to go off wildly, you know, into all kinds of crazy old speculation, that I'm at least starting from, you know, knowing roughly what happened when and who was involved. Uh, yeah. And that, that speculation isn't going to, you know, upset actual real historians too much. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Speaking of yeah. uh, of history and getting the facts straight, uh, real quick, was Maria Orsic a real person? Oh man! <laughs> you know, I was talking to Andrew Collins uh, about Maria Orsic only a couple of days ago. As far as I'm concerned, I would have not seen anything that is earlier than, say, 1980, that says anything about any of this mythology. You know, there's a guy called uh, Landig, uh, who was about in Vienna in the 50s. I think he'd been in in the SS. There's there's what I call second-generation Nazi occultism. And it's got a life of its own. You know, how many of the motifs you can actually find in real documentation from the Third Reich era is another thing altogether. Like, you know, what's made of that um, black sun design from the right. uh, floor in the crypts of Babelsberg, what people make of it now. The Maria Orsic stuff is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the conversation I was having with Andy Collins about it the other day, we were likening it to the Necronomicon. Mm-hmm. That it's kind of like some kind of astral grimoire. Mm-hmm. It's like it's something out there that everybody's kind of buying into, and it's got some kind of strange emotive power to it that it's kind of almost coming to life of its own accord. And and there's a there's a whole thing that you know I think just as you know Simon in 1975 created his his legendary dangerous version of the Necronomicon. And, you know, if you mess about with it, things will happen and you might not be too happy with it at the end. So I would say, you know, it, there are people out there who are engaging with Maria Rolsick and the Black Sun and Nazi ufology. And it's almost making it more real. It's almost bringing it through from the abyss. Mm. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I treat it with extreme caution. Yeah, yeah it is really compelling. What, what, you know, I've used the word insidious today already. What I'd say about this mythology that's insidious is that it suggests that in the early days, the likes of the Thor Society, that there are actually some good people amongst them. You know, Orsic and company, you know, they're channeling this stuff from the ETs and whatnot. They, it's kind of the intention's pure, and then later on, you know, when it really gets going, it all goes to shit. Well, that's a bit of a bummer, but now we can kind of get back to what it was really all about, 
wrong. It was always shit. It was always <laughs> moving. They were all fucked up from day one. You know, and if, if yeah. you if you start to suggest that actually this there was ever anything cool about these guys, and it might be, you know, that it, the bloke just took it off a little bit too extreme and it would have been all right about him. No, 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 no. That's just another one of these insidious things that yeah. like, you usually will find. It's like with Holocaust deniers. You know, when you when you trace where this is all coming from, you will normally find people that aren't even remotely Holocaust deniers. They know damn well it happened and they could be quite happy if it happened again. Yeah. But they would give you any amount of fucking nonsense. Um, yeah. you know, we've now got we've got at least one in the worshiping Holocaust denying ayahuasca visionary hippie in Glastonbury oh, who yeah. uh, you know the, the mere existence of such a person perplexes me massively. Yeah. Just you know a, a great uh, a great warning, you know, to be discriminating and, and, and just you know step back from some of these things to get the feeling of where they're really coming from. Yeah, mm. man, that's. That's just a fascinating idea too. It's almost like you have like a, a historical tulpa retroactively manifesting with the the Orsic stuff, and you know your your, your work is you've talked great greatly about uh, Crowley and Loch Ness, and it's oh uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's the same kind of thing of this like almost like tulpa emerging through the history, and there's the trickster element of you know the connection with uh, Typhon and Leviathan and back to the dark tunnels of set and it ends up with cute Nessie, you know, like there's just this funny trickster button on it all. Well, well, yeah, before we get too far away from uh, the whole Nazi thing in relation to yeah. that and the topic, one of the things that I, I found really fascinating was to hear what the notorious Michael Aquino, you know, <laughs> temple of set fame, what he had to say about the, the crypt at Babelsberg, because, you know, it's quite well known that back in 1982, um, he got in there and, and you know, they, they were less strict then. They let him spend a bit of time in there on his own. And he did what he, what he called the Babelsberg working. But regardless of that, what he had to say was that he felt, you know, uh, using imagery from the Forbidden Planet movie, was that it was like a Krell machine. Mm. In other words, that... There, there was something about the way this tower was configured. You know, it's got acoustic properties, which have never been, you know, properly explained why they went to all that trouble. But whoever kind of hung about in the bottom of it, whatever they were doing there, they basically got the monsters from the air to come out big time. Right. And they, you know, they completely lost control of it. There was no way that they would ever be able to maintain control of it. And that... Uh, that was, uh, you know, where an awful lot of what was going on was amplified to the max, you know, and came out there. I thought that was kind of fascinating, you know, and I'm willing to sort of broadly go along with that as a sort of, you know, at least a poetic way of understanding what's going on there. Because, you know, this is a place where they, they had a meeting, you know, whatever we can say about the occult side of it, we know that Himmler and Heydrich had a meeting shortly before Operation Barbarossa at Babelsberg, where they discussed how they were going to conduct themselves in Russia. And it was pretty much thought, well, you know, tens of millions of people would probably die, but okay, whatever. You know, we'll get what we want, and that's that. So this is what is, is occurring, you know, uh, in the in the vicinity of the Krill machine. Uh, and monsters from the in days, you know. Uh, and there is something very, you know, anyone since Lovecraft can probably kind of... Uh, 
appreciate a whole bunch of nuances in that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I is guess a- Aquino just died, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, a massively freaking controversial figure for sure. Yeah. Um, all kinds of stuff in the minors column, but I'm still, you know, find it fascinating to at least hear what he has to say about time mm. spent in the in the crypt of Babelsberg. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. As far as the the, the Maria Orsic uh, thing, it, it it like what Dave said about the the sort of tulpa, but it, it reminds me of uh, of like you know like the subculture of like fan fiction. Like that's uh, like uh, people, people uh, talked about Q and all that it was some yeah. kind of interactive game, right? And you know that one of the things that characterised it was you brought your own stuff to the you know the Q drops. You worked your totally. own things out. Well, yeah, people are in their own way doing that with with Maria Orsic and Vril and and knots and ufology. Yes, it's yeah. difficult about it. Is it, it's more focused, so it actually you know, potentially makes it stronger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Channeling like a very specific, not like person that never existed. Uh, what's that that experiment? The the Philip experiment or something? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> At the moment, you see what 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 would be very interesting now is if we then discover that she did exist, mm-hmm. right? Because did she really exist before we started all this malarkey? Have we actually sort of somehow messed with multiple timelines and somehow created her <laughs> and the whole biography that went with her? You know, the idea that something outside the gates of time uh, is maybe wanting us to make it real. You know, this, this is, you know, this is a, a kind of Lovecraftian horror story aspect to this that I've always been very mindful of. You know, back in the days when I was doing psychic questing with Andy Collins 30 years ago, there was a side of it called black questing, uh, which, you know, involved people tuning into supposed desecration of sacred sites. And we'd go along and we, you know, we, we dig up stuff with weird inscriptions on it that have been buried at various places. And some of these things, I, I didn't even know whether or not they had, they had literally been buried by physical people or something that just manifested and was using us. You know, we, had, we were a very unusual bunch of people. Some of the psychics had the ability to manifest stuff physically uh, very readily uh, that something wanted us to make it more real. Something wanted us to bring stuff through. And this is, is where... You know, that sense of responsibility and, and just, you know, some kind of some kind of higher morality, you know, has to somehow inform what you're doing. Um, there are risks. Of course there are. It's a high stakes game we're involved in at the moment. Yeah. Wow. That's like, that's so fascinating too, because that's actually the story of Maria Orsic is that you know, she was channeling something was telling her supposedly to bring something through that maybe yeah. she she should have hypothetically been conscious of not bringing through herself. You know, it's like almost like a, a time loop, like the uh, the Atlantis story or myth, you know, like it the story itself is is a kind of touchstone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's potentially a morality tale, but I don't think the fans of it are necessarily engaging with it on that level. Yep. I think the fact that Maria, you know, Maria Orsic, the, the photos supposedly of her, the fact that she's conventionally attractive um, mm. is definitely a huge factor. If she just looks straightforward, 
people wouldn't wouldn't be latching onto it. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And that right. kind of exploitation, you know, yeah. of a particular type. Uh, quite deliberately, I think. Sure. Yeah. And the the myths of the the long hair to her. All that stuff. Yeah. 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 Like, which is like Aryan priestesses and blah blah blah. Yeah. You know, it, 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 you don't have to go too far down that road before there are massive great warning signals, or they you know that you, they should be audible of any sane person, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. When we were looking into that, uh, we did like a, a short. Uh, dive into the sort of Nazi UFO uh, subculture uh, for an episode. And I I didn't really know that much about it because it always kind of put me off, but I, I kind of went into it assuming that like some of the stuff, even if it wasn't actually like as, you know, big as uh, books made it seem, I assumed Maria Orsic, Orsic was like a real person. <laughs> you just like very quickly, like you see like, well, no one ever mentioned her <laughs> yeah, before. Yeah uh pretty recently so it's uh it is it's so interesting how yeah that retroactive creation of mythology kind of makes you think different things about what had already been sort of historically settled yeah well i think she's vibing in the ethers at the moment and yeah. i think something wants, wants us uh to make her real yeah so, if that isn't a, 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 at least a moderate cause for concern, I don't know what is. We'll put we'll put out the candles on that. <laughs> yeah, we'll put the sifters on. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Um, what else? What else should we get into? So, uh, so what have you been working yeah. on recently? Yeah. Right. Well, obviously, it's been a very strange time uh, <clears throat> yeah. with the lockdowns and so forth. I've had an extended. Uh, Colin Wilson project that I keep coming back to. Oh, awesome. And, you know, one of the things about the later period of Colin Wilson is, mm. is that he has this kind of little golden phase in the late 90s where he, he suddenly starts producing some great work again. And he was commissioned to write a one-volume book on ufology called Alien Doll, yeah. uh, which I absolutely loved bits. And the reason, one of the reasons why I love it is because, as always, he uses it as, as a vehicle, basically, for his ongoing, you know, obsession, which is the nature of human consciousness mm. and, and his new existentialism and intentionality and the fact that, you know, we're not passive uh, perceivers. We are actively engaged. And if we do that with the full knowledge of, of, of the greats, you know, of whom, you know, Gurdjieff and Aspensky were a major thing for him, then that's where all the action is. And that quite possibly the ancient cultures uh, had a better knowledge of this. And, and one of the things that's fascinating is with, from Atlantis to the Sphinx, there's always, there's always this kind of thing, how on earth did they work out the maths on the Great Pyramid, you know, and some of these ancient structures? And maybe, you know, they must have had help from ETs and so on. From quite early on, Colin Wilson is interested in maths prodigies, you know, kids that can do enormous great calculations in their head in five seconds flat, you know, autistic twins and a whole bunch of things like that. And he um, basically puts forward the idea that, you know, these societies, um, and especially prior to, you know, if we've got some kind of big ice age comic strike cutoff point 
the, the likes of Graham Hancock would posit. What was the mindset of these these previous civilizations that could do, you know, global mapping or whatever? Mm. Maybe they're, you know, they're shamans. Maybe the people that they relied on for this information were actually these kind of, you know, strange calculating prodigies, these strange autistic types. We're now very much, you know, we have this sense of neurodiversity now in, in the modern world more and more. This idea that people's brains, you know, work quite interestingly and that there are certain types who, who inhabit a, a zone that's almost impossible to kind of get a handle on it, the mass prodigies. Colin Wilson gets to this. And what's intriguing now, Andy Collins um, is, I think he was in the Cygnus key, and he's certainly into this now with the Denisovans and uh, um, the mysteries of, of the ancient Altaic culture, that quite possibly these people's brains were completely different and they worked like that. And, and the, the way they would have experienced everyday life, certainly the, you know, the specialists, the shamans, the priests, the priestesses, would have been radically, radically different. Mm. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that fascinated me about Wilson, that he got to this right at the end of his life. Um, and one of the, the things that I'm running with, um, which I got from our Spensky, actually, is, is the idea of the long body, what, what our Spencer called the Lingashir era, uh, that basically there's a fourth dimensional side to people's lives and destinies. And that Colin Wilson, you know, was always going to end up where he ended up with Alien Dawn. And from Atlantis thinks he was always going to go through a whole bunch of things. Uh, and the, the sum total of his body of work you know, hangs outside of the normal space-time continuum because of where he connected so repeatedly and meetings that he had, you know, particularly with Robert Graves on the island of Daya, that was a real uh, a real serious moment of transformation for him where a whole new level of the ball game kicked in. These are all the things that I'm fascinated with. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bring a different perspective on, you know, it's a massive project and it could well be another year before I finish it. I mean, I'm hundreds and hundreds of pages in, but I'm not just writing a standard summary of his work. You know, Gary Lackman's already done a fine job on that. Yeah. Other people have done fine jobs. I'm trying to do a very distinctly, you know, Paul Western overview of, of the mystery of, of Wilson's saying from the outside same from mm. a different kind of perspective and the unity that's, that's always there. That sounds incredible. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love well, that's a bit, yeah. bit of motivation for me to step it up a bit then, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, what, uh, is Alien Dawn your favorite Colin Wilson book? Um, I wouldn't say that, no. Um, I think maybe Mysteries. Mm. Mysteries I came to at a certain point in my life. There, there's, there's a whole chapter on the Earth mysteries in there called The Path of the Dragon, uh, mm. all about ley lines and, and T.C. Mm. Lethbridge and his dousing, all this kind of stuff. I was just kind of starting to go out to all these places, just been to the Stone Inch Festival, just been to Glastonbury for the first time when I read that. And him using that as his launch pad into you know the usual stuff about time slips, you know, and synchronicities, which ultimately is, is one of the things I'm most obsessed about. Uh, that was a great way in for me with that book. Um, you know, I've read it quite a few times now, probably more more than a lot of people would. You know, in fact, the whole yeah. of I've read it many times. Mm. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, he's such a yeah, his uh his the arc of his career is so interesting and I like that angle that maybe it was sort of like this, yeah, this long loop or sort of like it all happened like in a fourth dimensional, like sort of as a what would you call it, like a fourth dimensional object or something? Well, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I do feel that the meeting he had with Robert Graves uh, was an initiatory moment. Yeah, you know, he does dedicate the occult to him, mm-hmm. and he, he'd never really met anyone like Graves before. He'd hung out with a, a lot of literary figures, you know, T.S. Eliot, Henry Miller. He'd even met Albert Camus in a cafe in Paris, I think. You know, he'd hung out with a lot of these conventional figures. But Graves, you know, Graves was 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 more was a self-styled bard in the old style of, of, of a magician. And he'd been through a lot of stuff, you know, he he kind of had a shamanic death, rebirth, dismemberment thing in the first world war, he'd been wounded, I think, at the Battle of Somme. And it was literally assumed that he was gonna die. You know, they had actually put out uh, a dispatch to the effect that he had died. Um, but he, he didn't die, he came back to life. And then not long after that, uh, he went down with the, you know, the 1918 influenza epidemic that killed so many million people. He went down with that as well, uh, mm-hmm. and he survived that. And he had been one of these guys who, um, as a young man, had had an, a, a kind of strange experience, Colin Wilson writes about it, where he, he somehow believed that he just knew everything, that he had come to some sort of apprehension of how you can just organise absolutely all knowledge and understanding. And it stayed with him for you know, maybe a day or so, and then he lost it. Mm. Um, Wilson said he'd never you know, come across anything like that before. But that is, you know, this sets him up. Now, I mean, I don't know, I, I could tell you um, quite an interesting story if we've got a little bit more time still. Relating sure. to, to all this, course, yeah. rock and roll territory. <clears throat> now, where where I got my perspective from this this is a story that I've told in Abalone Neon. I already knew this story, but it's the mystery of why you get um, particular bits of understanding at a particular time. Mm-hmm. There's a guy called David Allen who was the founder of a prog rock band Gold, and you know he was somebody typical '60s kind of figure, hung out with William Burroughs did a lot of acid and so on. He was in, on Daya, the island of Daya in Mallorca, um, in 1966, and it was Easter, and he'd been given some Owsley acid, uh, and he was going to take acid with his, his, his girlfriend at the time. And, you know, this would inevitably have been a, a big deal anyway, but he knew, he knew about Robert Graves. He, he was not nodding terms with him. And Daya was a place, supposedly, that had been... T- uh, sacred to Diana, the moon goddess, so forth. He bumps into Robert Graves and they go for a walk up what was one of Graves' favourite sort of hillside walks. And Graves does this sort of free-form rap to him where he talks about the troubadours, he talks about the white goddess, he talks about the divine feminine, a whole bunch of the kind of things that Graves is, is well known for. And David Allen feels that he literally gets, he, he called it bioenergetic power transfer by osmosis. He literally gets some kind of transmission from Graves. And, you know, a day later he does acid with his, his wife and they have this in, incredible visionary sexual experience that is like something out of a book by Timothy Leary. And he also sees himself, you know, on a stage 
and there are all these people looking at him and there's a great white great light above him and so on and he feels that he's been given the impetus to become a troubadour and that he's been given you know a mission and that part of of, of what all this was involved was this transfer of a whole package of ideas that come directly they leap out of graves and into him because he's ready now he goes on you know this is the beginning of his of his career in popular music he goes on to found goal uh and there's a whole bunch of stuff there but what i what i found interesting because i'm you know david allen hung about around here in the 90s you know and I, I did get to meet him a few times which was which was great and i read his autobiography the historian back in the late 90s and i'd written about it in avalonian eon but then i just i, I go back to colin wilson and you know i knew this already you know colin wilson became a writer in residence at a college in Dyer in, in um, the late 60s. And he knew that Graves was there and, you know, he wanted to hang out with him. So Graves um, takes him, you know, they meet up and he takes him for a walk um, up one of his favourite hillside paths. And when they get to a certain point up, Graves challenges Colin Wilson to sort of change, change into some swimming trunks and, and jump off the cliff into the water. Uh, and Wilson's a little bit reticent, but they do it. And I, start, I started to think, hang on a moment, you know, this sounds like exactly the same path that Graves has gone up with David Allen. And from this point on, Graves talks at length to Colin Wilson. He's the major... Wilson's just been commissioned to write a book on the occult. And Graves is the first person that he really engages with and he sort of says, well, shall I do it? And Graves says, no, you better not. But he then starts talking to him about poetry, about the white goddess, and a whole concept of lunar knowledge. The theme of lunar knowledge is a massive thing in Colin Wilson's The Occult. Uh, in a way that it actually isn't. He almost kind of, he runs with the same ideas, but he never uses the same terminology again. And I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of like a dream. You know, Robert Graves has literally, with Colin Wilson, jumped into the sea of lunar knowledge. You know, he's literally chucked him in there. And, and Colin Wilson had just written this little biography, an early one, Voyage to the Beginning. He's never the same again. You know, that is literally the point. He has met this guy who is like a shaman, who is like a bard, who is like a magician. And, Fair play at Graves, he's over 70 at this time. When he's met David Allen and when he's uh, met Colin Wilson, he's served his purpose. He's not a young man anymore, but he has essentially set Wilson off in an extraordinary way that I don't think Colin Wilson himself ever realised it, and I don't think any of his biographers have either. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I'm, I go to town on that. Um, and I've got, you know, from that, I'm not going to go into it now, but I've got a similar kind of perspective on what happened with C.C. Lethbridge. I think he, he, you know, there's some very clear threshold crossings for him mm. that are actually worth um, putting alongside Robert Graves. So I had a lot of stuff going on in my head, but, you know, uh, keeping a roof over my head and keeping my sanity during this period of time um, yeah. has, has prevented me from, from completing this project so far. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, Graves is so interesting. I... The last time I really looked into him again was uh, I was really into the the poet Laura Riding Jackson, and so I right. looked at their I looked at their relationship a bit, and 
seemed pretty strange. So yeah, I wonder. Yeah. Well, Graves, you know, Graves is a guy who, who can very readily be criticised for his attitude towards women. I mean, in the yes. White Goddess, which obviously is, is in many respects a masterpiece, he actually says, you know, that women can't really write poetry. Well, you know, he's going to get for that straight off. And there's yeah. a whole, you know, the way he conducted himself through his life was pretty strange. But he was nonetheless extraordinary. The White Goddess is extraordinary. Yeah. And he was able, you know, in that circumstances to fulfill a very strange purpose for both David Allen and Colin Wilson. For mm. sure, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I, yeah, I had never actually, well, I, I knew that Wilson had dedicated stuff to Graves, but I didn't really know the full extent of that. I mean, yeah. I didn't know that story, yeah. It was in the occult that I first heard the story yeah. of how the White Goddess you know, came to be written, and mm -hmm. that has always been my kind of benchmark for being possessed by the creative force. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. what that level of the game engaged, no matter yeah. how much it might disrupt you, because uh, there's nothing like it. You know. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading uh, that that Colin Wilson book. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there is going to be, I hope, a Glastonbury Occult Conference uh, in February, mm. where if nothing else, I, I'm going to do do a whole lecture on that. Great. Um, yeah. That's there'll, be, uh, there'll be some pictures and that get filmed, and I hope that ends up on YouTube, so there'll probably be yeah. you know, that expanded into an hour's worth. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, and speaking of YouTube, um, Got to direct people to your channel with many great yeah, lectures. Yeah, I've got a full Western channel and some of the things I've talked about tonight, the um, launch of the Glastonbury Zodiac and Earth Mistress Ufology, the hour-long lecture on that. Yeah. You know, that's up there. Uh, real 18 certificate full stuff with South End Glastonbury Cremation Grand Mandala. And for my occult battle of Britain, uh, there's a whole bunch of videos of me talking about different phases of Nazi occultism and, and whatnot on there. Right. We didn't even get into talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. There, I feel uh, like uh, there's so many directions we could go and go for hours. Talk. We could talk about 90s dance music and the. Oh, uh, yeah. The... I was talking about a while ago. Yeah. On somebody else's show. I mean, it was a very liminal moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it has, it has been said by a few people, John Higgs, who's written about KLF, has said the early 90s were a very yeah. strange time. And now that we're, you know, 30 years out from it, we can gauge just how strange it really was because it's sure shit, nothing like now, you know. <laughs> yeah. we, wish, yeah. we wish that maybe that wasn't the case and that we had a little bit more of that vibe coming back on us. Definitely, yeah. 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 Um, I guess maybe one one last question I'd like to ask, um, you know, somebody who spent so much time researching, but also uh, sort of navigating, you know, phenomena yourself um, and these sort of, you know, different workings and processes of initiation. Uh, what advice would you give people who are looking to uh, begin with engaging this kind of stuff? Never neglect your physical health, you know. <laughs> Your physical health is is centre of gravity. Mm. If you're in, you know, a state of health and vitality, you are far less likely to believe a load of fucked up nonsense. You know, I've, I've got a kind of thing with my, you know, I don't, unfortunately, I don't get all that often. But my basic thing is, if I'm, if I had the flu or something, or I had a cold, or it's just a little bit off. My, my thing that I've trained myself, don't believe anything that you feel about how your life is in that moment. 
and that goes to the bigger reality as well hmm. you know because your the way you engage with information and ideas is incredibly dictated by the state of your psychophysical organism. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm big on the Eastern tradition, I'm big on yoga. You know, that's that's part of the whole thing of the limbs of yoga is, is you're readying yourself for how the old force activates in you and whether it fries the end off your toenails or whether you actually sort of come out of it vaguely sane. A whole bunch of stuff will be activated. If you're, you know, not eating, not sleeping, the chances of you being able to deal with it effectively of just lower diminishing returns. And again, you know, if you can't, you know, if you're doing psychoactive substances, all the more reason to sort of, you know, discipline it, hmm. you know, to, to draw the distinction between getting high and getting wasted. I used to find, you know, if I went six months, you know, going down the gym, going out running, shoveling vitamins down me, and then at the end of all that, you know, smoke some Afghanistan black. Um, I would be, in, you know, I'd end up in my head inside some Gothic cathedral having an experience of the download of the mystical tradition of the ages. Whereas if you're just for smoking that shit every day, all that's going to happen is you're going to, yeah, it's going to turn mashed potato. You know, you've got to, you've got to be a worthy vehicle. Yeah. And, and, and I was fortunate that I had a voracious appetite for reading books. Yeah, you know, I, I read, I, I could read a two hundred and fifty page book every day, no no problem. Mm. You know, I, I don't do that any now that I'm writing. But you know, a couple of weeks ago, I suddenly just got locked into something that was five hundred pages long and read it in two days. Uh, read stuff. You know, and, and like go out of your way to cultivate the opposite sign, man. You know, it's like see what the opposition are supposedly saying. It is it is the case. I say it in the psychology of Thelema section of my Crowley book that you know you may think that you're on one side of a particular divide. When you go and have a look at what the other side of thinking and how they're expressing themselves. You might well think, oh, my God, what idiots, you know, unsophisticated they are, and that's such an obvious bit of misinformation, blah, blah, blah. But then what should happen, ideally, is when you come back to where you think is actually the zone of what you believe in, you start to maybe see a few cracks in that. You think, well, maybe that's a little bit badly expressed. Maybe that's a very partial opinion. Maybe that. And then, you know, cease to identify with both. Not to say that maybe one side is still not a little bit better than the other, but it's like the minute you just absolutely knock yourself into any of those extremes, you limit your possibilities massively, you know. And just, you know, always remember with Bill and Ted to be excellent to each other. It's like, you know, the whole ferocity of this current polarization, the fact that people demonize and are quite prepared. It's the old mythic archetype of the book of Revelation. The unrighteous chuck them in a lake of fire. Mm. You know, we're the elects at the end of the day. We're all going to be standing around in white robes and we're going to rule okay and it's going to be great. You know, only it ain't. And it never has been and it never will be. It's always just a pile of corpses somewhere as a result of that one. So, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and dig history, man. Just yeah, pay a yeah. bit of attention to it, especially the history of the 20th century. Mm. It's starting the extent to which 
people, you know, are, are forgotten even the last hundred years or don't know enough about it or it just locks into all kinds of, you know, misconceptions about it. Yeah. Oh, man, that's incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a... Yeah. Just an amazing interview, too, and I feel like we, we went in so many different directions. Yeah, I, I enjoyed myself tremendously there. I hope that that all sort of comes out all right in the eventual YouTube result and everybody can hear it okay and hasn't got any problems with my accent and, and so on. I think it'll, yeah, I think it'll be good, yeah. I think it sounded great, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah. on. And we, we well, thank you guys for sort of, you know, letting me realize I've still got a little bit to say. I'll sometimes go weeks about I'll be speaking to anybody, you know, so <laughs> nice to know that I'll still do this. Yeah. Yeah, I think clear, awesome. clearly you do still have something to say. And uh, we hope we hope to have you on again sometime, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah incredible well thank you so much again uh and also what what uh let's get some links on there for people to check out your books and and stuff because that's definitely important here well i've i've got an amazon authors page uh my stuff you know over the other side of the pond with you guys it's all on kindle i've got 11 books out there they're all available on kindle in the states in the uk most of my books are still uh, available in paperback form People do contact me from all around the world and occasionally say, look, can I can I buy one of your books if I pay all that extra postage? You know, I'm contactable. Um, you know, people can PayPal me or whatever. Um, and, you know, I'm on Facebook. Um, as you guys know, I'm fairly easy to get hold of um, and to see what I'm up to, which is not on an external form that much at the moment, although next year hopefully more so. But I respond to events and, and I do like to hear from people that have maybe, you know, connected up to my work and find it of interest in any way. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Paul Weston. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks again. All right. All right. Well, happy days, guys. Here's to sanity and reality. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it for us. <laughs>